Section 41 of Essays, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Essays, Book 2 by Michel de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. Apology for Raymond Sibond. Learning is, indeed, a very great and a very material accomplishment, and those who despise it sufficiently discover their own want of understanding. But learning, yet I do not prize it at the excessive rate that some others do, as Herillus, the philosopher for one, who therein places the sovereign good, and maintained that it was only in her to render us wise and contented, which I do not believe, no more than I do what others have said, that learning is the mother of all virtue, and that all vice proceeds from ignorance, which, if it be true, required a very long interpretation. My house has long been open to men of knowledge, and is very well known to them, for my father, who governed it for fifty years and upwards, inflamed with the new ardor with which Francis I embraced letters, and brought them into esteem, with great diligence and expense hunted after the acquaintance of learned men, receiving them into his house as persons sacred and that had some particular inspiration of divine wisdom, collecting their sayings and sentences as so many oracles, and with so much the greater reverence and religion as he was the less able to judge of them, for he had no knowledge of letters any more than his predecessors. For my part I love them well, but I do not adore them. Amongst others, Peter Bunel, a man of great reputation for knowledge in his time, having, with some others of his sort, stayed some days at Montaigne in my father's company, he presented him at his departure with a book entitled Theologia Naturalis, Siwe Liber Creatur Arum Magistri Raimondi de Sebonde, and as the Italian and Spanish tongues were familiar to my father, and as this book was written in a sort of jargon of Spanish with Latin terminations, he hoped that, with a little help, he might be able to understand it, and therefore recommended it to him for a very useful book, and proper for the time wherein he gave it to him, which was when the novel doctrines of Luther began to be in vogue, and in many places to stagger our ancient belief wherein he was very well advised, wisely in his own reason, foreseeing the beginning of this distemper would easily run into an execrable atheism, for the vulgar, not having the faculty of judging of things, suffering themselves to be carried away by chance and appearance, after having once been inspired with the boldness to despise and control those opinions which they had before had in extreme reference, such as those wherein their salvation is concerned, 
and that some of the articles of their religion are brought into doubt and dispute, they afterwards throw all other parts of their belief into the same uncertainty, they having with them no other authority or foundation than the others they had already discomposed, and shake off all the impressions they had received from the authority of the laws, or the reverence of the ancient customs, as a tyrannical yoke. Nam cupide concolcaternimis antimetutum. For with most eagerness they spurn the law by which they were before most kept in awe. Resolving to admit nothing for the future to which they had not first interposed their own decrees and given their particular consent. It happened that my father, a little before his death, having accidentally found this book under a heap of other neglected papers, commanded me to translate it for him into French. It is good to translate such authors as this, where there is little but the matter itself to express, but such wherein grace of language and elegance of style are aimed at are dangerous to attempt especially when a man is to turn them into a weaker idiom. It was a strange and a new undertaking for me, but uh, having by chance at that time nothing else to do, and not being able to resist the command of the best father that ever was, I did it as well as I could, and he was so well pleased with it as to order it to be printed, which after his death was done. I found the ideas of this author exceeding fine, the contexture of his work well followed, and the design full of piety. And because many people take a delight to read it, and particularly the ladies, to whom we owe the most service, I have often thought to assist them to clear the book of two principal objections made to it. His design is bold and daring for he undertakes, by human and natural reasons, to establish and make good against the atheists all the articles of the Christian religion, wherein, to speak the truth, he is so firm and so successful that I do not think it possible to do better upon that subject. Nay, I believe he has been equaled by none. This work, seeming to me to be too beautiful and too rich for an author whose name is so little known, and of whom all that we know is that he was a Spaniard, practicing physic at Toulouse about two hundred years ago, I inquired of Adrian Tournebus, who knew all things, what he thought of that book, who made answer, that he thought it was some abstract drawn from St. Thomas d'Aquin, for that, in truth, his mind, so full of infinite erudition and admirable subtlety, was alone capable of such thoughts. Be that as it may, whoever was the author and inventor, and tis not reasonable without greater certainty to deprive Sibon of that title, he was a man of great judgment, and most admirable parts. The first thing they reprehend in his work is that Christians are to blame to repose their belief upon human reason, which is only conceived by faith, 
and the particular inspiration of divine grace. In which objection there appears to be something of zeal to piety, and therefore we are to endeavor to satisfy those who put it forth with the greater mildness and respect. This were a task more proper for a man well read in divinity than for me who know nothing of it. Nevertheless, I conceive that in a thing so divine, so high, and so far transcending all human intelligence, as is that truth which which it has pleased the bounty of God to enlighten us, it is very necessary that he should moreover lend us his assistance, as a very extraordinary favor and privilege, to conceive and imprint it in our understanding. And I do not believe that means purely human are in any sort capable of doing it. For if they were, so many rare and excellent souls, and so abundantly furnished with natural force in former ages, could not have failed, by their reason, to arrive at this knowledge. Tis faith alone that lively mind certainly comprehends the deep mysteries of our religion. But withal, I do not say that it is not a worthy and very laudable attempt to accommodate those natural and human utensils with which God has endowed us to the service of our faith. It is not to be doubted but that it is the most noble use we can put them to, and that there is not a design in a Christian man more noble than to make it the aim and end of all of his studies to extend and amplify the truth of his belief. We do not satisfy ourselves with serving God with our souls and understandings only. We moreover owe and render him a corporal service, and apply our limbs and motions and external things to him honor. We must here do the same, and accompany our faith with all the reason we have but always with this reservation, not to fancy that it is upon us that it depends, nor that our arguments and endeavors can arrive at so supernatural and divine a knowledge. If it enters not into us by an extraordinary infusion, if it enters not only by reason, but moreover by human ways, it is not in us in its true dignity and splendor. And yet, I am afraid, we only have it by this way. If we hold upon God by the mediation of a lively faith, if we hold upon God by him and not by us, if we had a divine basis and foundation, human occasions would not have the power to shake us as they do. Our fortress would not surrender to so weak a battery. The love of novelty, the constraint of princes, the success of one party, and the rash and fortuitous change of our opinions would not have the power to stagger and alter our belief. We should not then leave it to the mercy of every new argument, nor abandon it to all the rhetoric in the world. We should withstand the fury of these waves with an immovable and unyielding constancy. 
as a great rock repels the rolling tides that foam and bark about her marble sides from its strong bulk. If we were but touched with this ray of divinity, it would appear throughout. Not only our words, but our works also would carry its brightness and luster. Whatever proceeded from us would be seen illuminated with this noble light. We ought to be ashamed that in all the human sex there never was any of the faction that did not in some measure conform his life and behavior to it, whereas so divine and heavenly institution does only distinguish Christians by the name. Will you see the proof of this? Compare our manners to those of a Mohammedan or pagan. You will still find that we fall very short. Where, out of regard to the reputation and advantage of our religion, we ought to shine in excellency at a vast distance beyond all others, and that it should be said of us, Are they so just, so charitable, so good? Then they are Christians. All other signs are common to all religions, hope, trust, events, ceremonies, penance, martyrs. The peculiar mark of our truth ought to be our virtue, as it is also the most heavenly and difficult and the most worthy product of truth. For this our good Saint Louis was in the right, who when the Tartar king, who was become Christian, designed to come to Lyon to kiss the Pope's feet, and there to be an eye-witness of the sanctity he hoped to find in our manner, immediately diverted him from his purpose, for fear lest our disorderly way of living should, on the contrary, put him out of conceit with so holy a belief. And yet it happened quite otherwise, since to that other, who, going to Rome to the same end, and there seeing the dissoluteness of the prelates and the people of that time, settled himself so much the more firmly in our religion, considering how great the force and divinity of it must necessarily be that could maintain its dignity and splendor amongst so much corruption, and in so vicious hands. If we had but one single grain of faith, we should remove mountains from their places, saith the sacred word. Our actions, that would then be directed and accompanied by the divinity, would not be merely human, they would have in them something of miraculous, as well as our belief. Brevesest institutio vitae honestae beataeque, si credes. Believe, and the way to happiness and virtue is a short one. Some oppose upon the world that they believe that which they did not. Others, more in number, make themselves believe that they believe, not being able to penetrate into what it is to believe. We think it strange if, in the civil war which at this time disorders our state, we see events float and vary after a common and ordinary manner which is because we bring nothing to it but our own. Justice, which is in one party, is only there for ornament and palliation. It is indeed pretended, but tis not there received, settled, and espoused. 
It is there as in the mouth of an advocate, not as in the heart and affection of the party. God owes his extraordinary assistance to faith and religion, not to our passions. Men there are the conductors, and therein serve themselves with religion, whereas it ought to be quite contrary. Observe, if it be not only by our hands that we guide and train it, and draw it like a wax into so many contrary figures, from a rule in itself so direct and firm. When and where was this more manifest than in France in our days? They who have taken it on the left hand, they who have taken it on the right, they who call it black, and they who call it white, alike employ it to their violent and ambitious designs, conduct it with a progress so conform in riot and injustice that they render the diversity they pretended in their opinions, in a thing whereon the conduct and rule of our life depends, doubtful and hard to believe. Did one ever see, come from the same school and discipline, manners more united and more the same? Do but observe with what horrid impudence we toss divine arguments to and fro, and how irreligiously we have both rejected and retaken them, accord as fortune has shifted our places in these intested storms. This so solemn proposition, whether it be lawful for a subject to rebel and take up arms against his prince for the defense of his religion, do you remember in whose mouths the last year the affirmative of it was the prop of one party and the negative pillar of another? And hearken now from what quarter comes the voice and instruction of the one and the other, and if arms make less noise and rattle for this cause than for that. We condemn those to the fire who say that truth must be made to bear the yoke of our necessity. And how much worse does France than say it? Let us confess the truth. Whoever should draw out from the army, even that raised by the king, those who would take up arms out of pure zeal to religion, and also those who only do it to protect the laws of their country, or for the service of their prince, could hardly, out of both these put together, make one complete company of gendarmes? Whence does this proceed, that there are so few to be found who have maintained the same will and the same progress in our civil commotions, and that we see them one while move but a foot-pace, and in another run at full speed? And the same men one while damage our affairs by their violent heat and fierceness, and another by their coldness, gentleness, and slowness but that they are pushed on by particular and casual considerations, according to the variety wherein they move. I evidently perceive that we do not willingly afford devotion any other offices but those that least suit with our own passions. Their hostility so admirable as the Christian our zeal performs wonders when it seconds our inclinations to hatred cruelty, ambition, avarice, detraction, and rebellion.
but when it moves against the hair, towards bounty, benignity, and temperance, unless by miracle some rare and virtuous disposition prompts us to it, we stir neither hand nor foot. Our religion is intended to extirpate vices, whereas it screens, nourishes, and incites them. We must not mock God, if we believed in him, I do not say by faith, but with a simple belief, that is to say, and I speak it to our great shame, if we believed in him and recognized him as we do any other history, or as we would do one of our companions, we should love him above all other things, for the infinite bounty and beauty that shines in him. At least he would go equal in our affection with riches, pleasure, glory, and our friends. The best of us is not so much afraid to outrage him as he is afraid to injure his neighbor, his kinsman, or his master. Is there any understanding so weak that having on one side the object of one of our vicious pleasures, and on the other, in equal knowledge and persuasion, the state of an immortal glory, would change the first for the other? And yet we often renounce this out of mere contempt. For what lust tempts us to blaspheme, if not perhaps the very desire to offend? The philosopher Antisthenes, as he was being initiated in the mysteries of Orpheus, the priest telling him that those who professed themselves of that religion were certain to receive perfect and eternal felicity after death. If thou believest that, answered he, why dost thou not die thyself? Diogenes, more rudely, according to his manner, and more remote from our purpose, to the priest that in like manner preached to him, to become of his religion, that he might obtain the happiness of the other world. What? said he. Thou wouldst have me to believe that Agisilaus and Epimondas, who were so great men, should be miserable, and thou, who art but a calf, and canst do nothing to purpose, shalt be happy because thou art a priest? Did we receive these great promises of eternal beatitude with the same reverence and respect that we do a philosophical discourse? We should not have death in so great horror. Non yam se moriens dissolvi concurreitur, sed magus iri for us, spemque relinquerat angais gauderat prilonga senex aut corno acervus. We should not, on a deathbed, grieve to be dissolved, but rather launch out cheerfully from our old hut, and with the snake be glad to cast off the corrupted slough we had, or with the old stag rejoice to be now clear from the large horns too ponderous grown to bear. I desire to be dissolved, we should say, and to be with Jesus Christ. The force of Plato's arguments concerning the immortality of the soul set some of his disciples to seek a premature grave that they might the sooner enjoy the things he had made them hope for. 
All this is a most evident sign that we only receive our religion after our own fashion, by our own hands, and no otherwise than as other religions are received. Either we are happened in the country where it is in practice, or we reverence the antiquity of it, or the authority of the men who have maintained it, or fear the menaces it fulminates against misbelievers, or are allured by its promises. These considerations ought, tis true, uh, to, to be applied to our belief, but as subsidiaries only, for they are human obligations. Another religion, other witnesses, the like promises and threats might, by the same way, imprint a quite contrary belief. We are Christians by the same title that we are Perigordians or Germans, and what Plato says, that there are few men so obstinate in their atheism whom a pressing danger will not reduce to an acknowledgment of the divine power, does not concern a true Christian. Tis for mortal and human religions to be received by human recommendation. What kind of faith can that be that cowardice and want of courage establish in us? A pleasant faith that does not believe what it believes, but for want of courage to disbelieve. Can a vicious passion such as inconstancy and astonishment cause any regular product in our souls? They are confident in their judgment, says he, that what is said of hell and future torments is all feigned, but an occasion of making the expedient presenting itself when old age or diseases bring them to the brink of the grave, the terror of death by the horror of that future condition inspires them with a new belief, and by reason that such impressions render them timorous he forbids in his laws all such threatening doctrines, and all persuasion that anything of ill can befall a man from the gods, excepting for his great good when they happen to him, and for a medicinal effect. They say of Bion that, infected with the atheism of Theodorus, he had had long religious men in great scorn and contempt, but that death surprising him, he gave himself up to the most extreme superstition, as if the gods withdrew and returned according to the necessities of Bion. Plato in these examples would conclude that we are brought to a belief of God either by reason or by force, atheism being a proposition as unnatural as monstrous, difficult also and hard to establish in the human understanding how arrogant soever there are men enough seen out of vanity and pride to be the authors of extraordinary and reforming opinions and outwardly to affect the profession of them who if they are such fools have nevertheless not the power to plant them in their own conscience yet will they not fail to lift up their hands towards heaven if you give them a good thrust with a sword in the breast? 
and when fear or sickness has abated and dulled the licentious fury of this giddy humor, they will easily reunite and very discreetly suffer themselves to be reconciled to the public faith and examples. A doctrine seriously digested is one thing, and those superficial impressions another, which, springing from the disorder of an unhinged understanding, float at random and great uncertainty in the fancy. Miserable and senseless men who strive to be worse than they can. The error of paganism and the ignorance of our sacred truth. Let this great soul of Plato, but great only in human greatness, fall into this other mistake, that children and old men were the most susceptible of religion, as if it sprung and derived its credit from our weakness, that naught that ought to bind the judgment and the will, that ought to restrain the soul and join it to our Creator, should be a knot that derives its foldings and strength not from our considerations, from our reasons and passions, but from a divine and supernatural constraint, having one form, one face, and one luster, which is the authority of God and his divine grace. Now the heart and soul, being governed and commanded by faith, tis but reason that they should muster all our other faculties, according as they are able to perform to the service and assistance of their design. Neither is it to be imagined that all this machine has not some marks imprinted upon it by the hand of the mighty architect, and that there is not in the things of this world some image that in some measure resembles the workman who has built and formed them. He has, in his stupendous works, left the character of his divinity, and tis our own weakness only that hinders us from discerning it. Tis what he himself is pleased to tell us, that he manifests his invisible operations to us by those that are visible. Subon applied himself to this laudable and noble study, and demonstrates to us that there is not any part or member of the world that disclaims or derogates from its maker. It were to do wrong to the divine goodness did not the universe consent to our belief. The heavens, the earth, the elements, our bodies, and our souls, all things concur to this. We have but to find out the way to use them. They instruct us if we are capable of instruction. For this world is a sacred temple, into which man is introduced, there to contemplate statues, not the works of a mortal hand, but such as the divine purpose has made the objects of sense, the sun, the stars, the water, and the earth, to represent those that are intelligible to us. The invisible tilings of God, says St. Paul, appear by the creation of the world, his eternal wisdom and divinity being considered by his works. And God himself envies not men the grace of seeing and admiring heaven's face, but rolling it about, he still anew presents its varied splendor to our view, and in our minds himself inculcates, so that we, the almighty mover, well may know, 
instructing us by seeing him the cause of ill to revere and obey his laws. Now our prayers and human discourses are but a sterile and undigested matter. The grace of God is the form, tis that which gives fashion and value to it. As the virtuous actions of Socrates and Cato remain vain and fruitless for not having had the love and obedience to the true creator of all things, so is it with our imaginations and discourses. They have a kind of body, but it is an informed mass without fashion and without light, if faith and grace be not added thereto. Faith coming to tinct and illustrate Sibon's arguments renders them firm and stolid, and to that degree that they are capable of serving for directions and of being the first guides to an elementary Christian to put him into the way of this knowledge. They in some measure form him to and render him capable of the grace of God by which means he afterwards completes and perfects himself in the true belief. I know a man of authority, bred up to letters, who has confessed to me to have been brought back from the errors of unbelief by Sibon's arguments. And should they be stripped of this ornament and of the assistance and approbation of the faith, and be looked upon as mere fancies only, to contend with those who are precipitated into the dreadful and horrible darkness of irreligion, they will even there find them as solid and firm as any others of the same quality that can be opposed against them, so that we shall be ready to say to our opponents, Si melius quid habes arcese, well imperium fair. If you have arguments more fit, produce them, or to these submit. Let them admit the force of our reasons, or let them show us others, and upon some other subject, better woven and of finer thread. I am unawares half engaged in the second objection, to which I propose to make answer in this behalf of Sibon. Some say that his arguments are weak and unable to make good what he intends, and undertake with great ease to confute them. These are to be a little more roughly handled, for they are more dangerous and malicious than the first men willingly rest the sayings of others to favor their own prejudicate opinions. To an atheist, all writings tend to atheism. He corrupts the most innocent matter with his own venom. These have their judgments so prepossessed that they cannot relish Sibon's reasons. As to the rest, they think we give them very fair play in putting them into the liberty of combating our religion with weapons merely human, whom, in her majesty, full of authority and command, they durst not attack. The means that I shall use, and that I think most proper to subdue this frenzy, is to crush and spurn underfoot pride and human arrogance, to make them sensible of the inanity, vanity, and vileness of man, to wrest the wretched arms of their reason out of their hands, to make them bow down 
and bite the ground under the authority and reverence of the divine majesty. Tis to that alone that knowledge and wisdom appertain. That alone can make a true estimate of itself, and from which we purloin whatever we value ourselves upon. Greek God permits not any being but himself to be truly wise. Let us subdue this presumption, the first foundation of the tyranny of the evil spirit. Deus superbis resistit humilibus autem dat gratiam. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Understanding is in the gods, says Plato, and not at all or very little in men. Now it is, in the meantime, a great consolation to a Christian man to see our frail and mortal parts so fitly suited to our holy and divine faith, that when we employ them to the subjects of their own mortal and frail nature, they are not even there more unitedly or more firmly adjusted. Let us see, then, if man has in his power other more forcible and convincing reasons than those of Sibon. That is to say, if it be in him to arrive at any certainty by argument and reason. For St. Augustine, disputing against these people, has good cause to reproach them with injustice. In that they maintain the part of our belief to be false that our reason cannot establish, and to show that a great many things may be, and have been, of which their nature could not sound the reason and causes. He proposes to them certain known and undoubted experiments wherein men confess they see nothing. And this he does, as all other things, with a curious and ingenious inquisition. We must do more than this, and make them know that, to convince the weakness of their reason, there is no necessity of culling out uncommon examples, and that it is so defective and so blind that there is no faculty clear enough for it, that to it the easy and the hard are all one, that all subjects equally, and nature in general, disclaim its authority and reject its mediation. What does truth mean when she preaches to us to fly worldly philosophy, when she often inculcates to us that our wisdom is but folly in the sight of God, that the vainest of all vanities is man, that the man who presumes upon his wisdom does not yet know what wisdom is, and that man, who is nothing, if he thinks himself to be anything, does seduce and deceive himself. These sentences of the Holy Spirit do so clearly and vividly express that which I would maintain, that I should need no other proof against men who would with all humility and obedience submit to his authority. But these will be whipped at their own expense, and will not suffer a man to oppose their reason but by itself. Let us then for once consider a man alone, without foreign assistance, armed only with his own proper arms and unfurnished of the divine grace and wisdom, which is all his honor, strength, and the foundation of his being.
Let us see how he stands in this fine equipage. Let him make me understand by the force of his reason upon what foundations he has built those great advantages he thinks he has over all other creatures. Who has made him believe that this admirable motion of the celestial arch, the eternal light of those luminaries that roll so high over his head, the wondrous and fearful motions of that infinite ocean, should be established and continue so many ages for his service and convenience? Can anything be imagined so ridiculous that this miserable and wretched creature, who is not so much as master of himself, but subject to the injuries of all things, should call himself master and emperor of the world, of which he has not power to know the least part, much less to command the whole? And the privilege which he attributes to himself of being the only creature in this vast fabric who has the understanding to discover the beauty and the parts of it, the only one who can return thanks to the architect and keep account of the revenues and disbursements of the world, who, I wonder, sealed him this patent? Let us see his commission for this great employment. Was it granted in favor of the wise only? Few people will be concerned in it. Are fools and wicked persons worthy so extraordinary a favor, and, being the worst part of the world, to be preferred before the rest? Shall we believe this man? For whose sake shall we therefore conclude that the world was made? For theirs who have the use of reason? These are gods and men than whom certainly nothing can be better. We can never sufficiently decry the impudence of this conjunction. What, wretched creature, what has he in himself worthy of such an advantage? Considering the incorruptible existence of the celestial bodies, beauty, magnitude, and continual revolution by so exact a rule. Com suspicumus moini caelestia mundi, templa super, stellisque mi cantibus aethera finum, et velat in mi cantem lunae solisque viarum. When we the heavenly arch above behold, and the vast sky adorned with stars of gold, and mark the regular course that the sun and moon in their alternate progress run, Considering the dominion and influence those bodies have, not only over our lives and fortunes, Factet in im et vitas hominum suspended ab artis, men's lives and actions on the stars depend. But even over our inclinations, our thoughts and wills, which they govern, incite, and agitate at the mercy of their influences, as our reason teaches us. Contemplating the stars, he finds that they rule by a secret and a silent sway, and that the enameled spheres which roll above do ever by alternate causes move, and studying these he can also foresee by certain signs the turns of destiny. Seeing that not only a man, not only kings, but that monarchies, empires, and all this lower world follow the influence of the celestial motions. How great a change a little motion brings! So great this kingdom is that governs kings.
if our virtue, our vices, our knowledge, and this very discourse we are upon of the power of the stars, and the comparison we are making betwixt them and us, proceed, as our reason supposes, from their favor. One maddened love may cross the raging main to level lofty Ilium with the plain. Another's fate inclines him more by far to study laws and statutes for the bar. Sons kill their father, fathers kill their sons, and one armed brother against another runs. This war is not theirs, but fates that spurs them on to shed the blood which shed they must bemoan. And I ascribe it to the will of fate that on this theme I now expatiate. If we derive this little portion of reason we have from the bounty of heaven, how is it possible that reason should ever make us equal to it? How subject its essence and condition to our knowledge? Whatever we see in those bodies astonishes us. Quae molitio, qua ferramenta, qui vectes, qua machina, qui ministri tanti operus fuerunt. What contrivance, what tools, what materials, what engines were employed about so stupendous a work? Why do we deprive them of soul, of life, and discourse? Have we discovered in them any immovable or insensible stupidity? We who have no commerce with them but by obedience? Shall we say that we have discovered in no other creature but man the use of a reasonable soul? What? Have we seen anything like the sun? Does he cease to be because we have seen nothing like him? And do his motions cease because there are no other like them? If what we have not seen is not, our knowledge is marvelously contracted. Quaisunt tatai anami angustiae. How narrow are our understandings. Are they not dreams of human vanity, to make the moon a celestial earth, there to fancy mountains and vales as an Anaxagoras did, there to fix habitations and human abodes and plant colonies for our convenience as Plato and Plutarch have done, and of our earth to make a luminous and resplendent star? Amongst the other inconveniences of mortality, this is one that darkness of the understanding which leads men astray, not so much from a necessity of erring, but from a love of error. The corruptible body stupefies the soul, and the earthly habitation dulls the faculties of the imagination. End of section 41. Reading by Malone.